God, we come to you tonight, tonight and we ask you, God, that you would exalt and magnify the truth in our midst and you would give us a spirit of understanding. God, that you'd give us grace to, to understand the mystery of the gospel, that which was sealed up for generations before, but you revealed in your Son. God, we ask you for clarity tonight and for a the witness of the Holy Spirit testifying to the truth. God, we want to love the truth. We want to love the truth. Strengthen us in Strengthen us, Lord. We want to be good soil that, uh, that hears the promise of the kingdom and and bears fruit thirty, sixty, and hundredfold. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. So uh, last session, I was uh, just telling John and back that I had. Uh, I had totally planned this session differently. It was uh, going to be totally different. And uh, and Tuesday morning, my friend Henry, um, he messaged me and uh, me and my other friend Jimmy. He voxed us and uh, he said, you know, I'm sure you guys know. And I had just woken up and they're in the Middle East. He said, I'm sure you guys know what happened. I just want to pray. And so he starts praying and and just the Holy Spirit comes on me and I'm Man, so I kind of pause it and I open up the, uh, I get on the internet and I find out about what happened in Jerusalem or at the, in the south side of Jerusalem. Or actually it wasn't Jerusalem, it was just in the Jewish quarter, I believe. But anyway, so you guys all know what happened in Jerusalem. So there was a, uh, um, so basically some Palestinians, just a couple of them, they were young men, they, they broke into a synagogue. It was, it's kind of like a, it's like a mini seminary, you know, yeshiva, and uh, and there were four rabbis and, and a handful of students, and they had a gun and a meat cleaver, and they uh, started, yeah, just massacring people, killed four rabbis, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, actually one other person died later. And anyway, so as it just hit me in the middle of it, you know, uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that they, they don't understand what's about to happen to them and they don't understand, um, they don't understand largely due to, due to self-righteousness what the, what the scripture is laid out clearly from Moses onwards. And, um, and so that hit me and then it hit, what hit me was really, um, related to our community and I actually, I actually just wept before the Lord for a little bit after I listened to the, the prayer and uh, and uh, I, I rewrote all the notes for tonight uh, in light of that. It doesn't have to do necessarily with the event at all. It just has to do with uh, uh, us, us gaining clarity because it's one thing to have your eyes dotted and your teeth crossed, which is, a, you know, can be... It's helpful, like if you're a teacher, it can be helpful. Not necessary, really, in most most of the real world. But it's but it's another but it's another issue that um, 
that we would that we would understand uh, together where where life is headed, and we would and we would really have conviction about that. And um, so that's generally what we're going to talk about today. And uh, so just the the witness of the gospel um, in context to the kingdom and the resurrection and the day of the Lord and uh, the age to come. So just as a review, we're going to go over. Uh, uh, so point one, uh, the two age framework of the Bible. So this is basically what we've laid out for the last four sessions, right? Is that there's the the, the scriptures has a is laid out in a in a simple timeline. You have this age and the things that are native to this age, and you have the age to come and the things that are native to that age. And, and uh, like Matthew 12, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So this is not a, he's not introducing new information, right? This is everybody understands this framework. And But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment, assuming the day of judgment is what separates the two ages. You have this age and the age to come. It's just like, this is obviously review. It should be like Sunday school review. But just to make it clear, so we have the nice picture in our brains engraved forever. This age and the age to come. Then Jesus said, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they're equal to angels, and they're sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So this age, that were that age, the that age being the age of the resurrection, where there's the sons of the resurrection. And uh, likewise, in Ephesians 1 and 2, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Uh, talking about that God has exalted Jesus above uh, the rulers and the, and the principalities in this age and in the age to come. And uh, likewise, the, spirit, or the, the scripture speaks of life in the present age having a certain nature and um, like Galatians 1 3 or 1 4 grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father evil uh, both characterizes what what this age is given to and it characterizes the way it functions like it, it's it's given over to to uh, to frailty and to weakness, but also this is what this is what's exalted in this age. I I, I had uh, Thanksgiving this weekend with one of my wife's sides of the family, and we and I was uh, one of our relatives invited a friend who's Brazilian. He'd only been in the country for you know a short time, a few months. And we were talking about the States and how it had always been a dream of his to come to the States. And, and after he's talking about the States for a second, I, I just kind of said, hold on a second. It sounds as if you have the impression that like really massive rampant corruption in government exists mostly in Latin America. <laughs> I said, 
you know, we just have more money to masquerade our, our depravity here, but it's not the case. Because that's what prevails in this age, right? That's why everybody gets up and promises us things that they can't possibly do because everybody here wants to believe them. And so we give them power and money. And, uh, and then we do it again next four years. So First Timothy 6, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life, right, in the resurrection. John 16, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be, of, be courageous, I have conquered the world. Titus 2, uh, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, which will conclude this age, right? For bodily... Uh, for bodily discipline, 1 Timothy 4, is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all, all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So this simple delineation of this age and the age to come is the framework that all of the scriptures communicated in. Like every book and chapter of the Bible assumes this to be a framework. It's why we talked about all the covenants are, are forward-reaching Abraham, I will bring forth seed from you that will bring blessing to the nations. And, and likewise, David, I will bring a seed from you and I will establish his throne. He will build my temple and I'll establish his throne forever. So all the covenants are forward reaching to another time. Likewise, even the promise of an everlasting covenant, the new covenant, there'll be a new covenant. And I will bring you back into the land, never again to exile you, etc., etc., etc. So then you have the, uh, the, the what, what primarily defines the two ages is, temp, scripturally, is temporal, present troubles or affliction versus unending future glory. The glory to come is always eternal and unending and the present troubles are always, always temporal. And uh, so like you have in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outer man keeps being utterly devastated. Nevertheless, speaking of himself and the other apostles, nevertheless, our inner man goes on being renewed day by day for our momentary and slight affliction is accomplishing for us an eternal weight of glory, eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. As we fix our attention not on the things that are presently being experienced, but rather on the things that are not yet being beheld. So that is just to to lay out that the issue of uh, hey man, to lay out that the issue of the things that are seen and unseen. This is a different. This is a different translation. <laughs> I forgot I was supposed to take this translation out. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> but um, this is a. A forthcoming translation. It's not yet released. 
so the, the idea of the, we focus our eyes on the things that are seen or on unseen, not what you're seeing, doesn't, isn't a reference to that which is invisible or visible. It's, it's a reference to the things that we are experiencing, the things that are now and the things that are not now. And um, likewise, throughout Paul, he references uh, a couple different times the seen and the unseen versus the unseen, and that's not spiritual versus material. That is, it's always present versus future, and it's clear in the context each time. For the things that are presently experienced are temporary, but the things that are not yet being beheld are eternal. So I like the translation because it it, it accentuates what they're uh, what it's actually talking about. So Romans eight. Now, if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed, present suffering versus the glory that will be revealed. Not only so, but we ourselves have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, which is the redemption of our bodies. But hope that is seen is not hope at all, right? Likewise, hope that is presently seen isn't actually hope. You don't hope for what you already see or what you already have. So, um, point D. So, uh, Brian, Melissa, we're just going over just an introduction or a, a review. So, basically, all we've gone over is that uh, just the kind of the substance of the last four classes is just that the the kind of the underlying theme of the scriptures, they're all communicated assuming this age and the age to come framework, right? It's really simple and straightforward. Um, so just laid out a bunch of scriptures that explain, A, that this was kind of normal for them to communicate that way, and B, what defines the two. So like, like difficulty, suffering, having a hard time feeding your family. Obviously, that's, you know, it's present age. Like John, John told me one time, he was talking to somebody at work, and there was, there was just a lot of confusion. And so John just answered him and said, do you know anybody that's died recently? Okay, it's the present age. <laughs> it does really bring clarity if you're willing to hear it. <laughs> so... Now, to Romans eight seventeen. now if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Okay, I just went through all that. Never mind. So age is divided by the day of the Lord. So uh, I, I just went over Matthew 12. Uh, so 2 Corinthians, or 2 Thessalonians 1. Um, so talking about their oppressors, uh, this is a, a testimony of God's righteous judgment, for they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day when he comes to be glorified in his holy people. So everlasting destruction begins on the day, right, when he comes to be glorified in his holy people. Um, likewise, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then these will go away 
to eternal punishment and then those to eternal life. So the eternal state, I mean, this is, this is no duh, right? But the eternal state begins when Messiah comes back. Okay, so now we're really going to start uh, diving into today. And we'll, we'll go through page six and uh, God willing and take a break or go through page five basically. Take a break. Um, so, uh, so let's go to uh, the witness of the mercy of God in the present age. So this, so in order to understand, it, it, you know, the, the you have the general framework, and then to understand the theme of the proclamation of the patriarchs and the prophets and Jesus and the apostles. This is this is the the framework for the way they communicated. It's it was a witness of the mercy of God in the present age. So, like Acts seventeen, when Paul is proclaiming the gospel to to the Athenians right on Mars Hill, and they don't they don't understand anything of the scriptures, and it's clear. And so he's trying to find a way to communicate with them. And, he, and he, as he's wrapping it up, he says, In the past, God, the one who made the heavens and the earth, he just explained that to him, overlooked the ignorance of your idolatry. Because it says he walked through and he was pierced in his heart with their idolatry. And he says he overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he appointed. So before that day comes, God is commanding all people everywhere repent so that they can be delivered from the day that he's appointed. And likewise, you have in uh, Romans 2, or do you, <laughs> like this one little phrase gets quoted all by itself, but let's read just two verses. This is not big context here. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience? So how do you show contempt for his kindness, his forbearance, his mercy? You don't realize that it's his kindness leading you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you store up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment is revealed. So how do you, how do you show contempt for his kindness? You don't repent in light of the wrath to come. You don't say, it's the hour of mercy, and you, and you repent, and you cling to the cross, right? That's how you show contempt. It's his kindness leading you to repentance in context to the day of wrath. <clears throat> Likewise, Second Peter 3, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking and following after their own lusts. And they'll be saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Right? So the mockers, it's a consistent message from the mockers. Right? They, they don't acknowledge the day of the Lord. They don't want to live in the tension. And so Peter just says, don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow as these guys are counting slowness. It's not like it's not going to come. 
And so how do we understand a delay? 6,000 years from creation, 2,000 years since the resurrection. He said, is God's being patient. He's not willing that any would perish. It's the mercy of God that is accounted for a 6,000 year waiting period for the sons of men. So that the proclamation can go forth can go forth and men will turn from their sin and idolatry and be saved from the wrath to come because the day is real. That's the only thing that explains the delay. If it's just like awesomeness in heaven, there's no reason for a delay. But if the day of the Lord's real, then we understand the delay because he's not willing for any to perish, but he's appointed a day. So in, in context to to the pattern of this age, the age to come. There's, there's also, we have with the coming of the Messiah, there's a messianic pattern. And the messianic pattern is uh, explained, uh, Paul explains it as the mystery. He, he calls it several times. And so the, the, the main part of the mystery that was really concealed is that the Messiah had to suffer in the, in the age of suffering, right? So if the Messiah appears... In this age, suffering is going to be involved until he inaugurates and brings the age to come. So that's why after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus, he appears to the disciples that are walking and he says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Likewise, Matthew 16 from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Why? Because Peter didn't understand the mystery yet. And he said, God forbid it, Lord. And I think the actual Hebrew, because it's a Hebrewism, I think the actual Hebrew is, God have mercy on you. This shall never happen. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. I'm sorry, I said Hebrew. Obviously, this is Greek here. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. For you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's interest. So God's interest was the suffering of the Messiah in the present age. That's God's interest. Peter was not interested in God's interest. Peter was interested in man's interest. <clears throat> Mark 9, they left that place and passed through Galilee and Jesus did not want anyone to know where they went because he was teaching his disciples. So this is a private gathering and he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands. So there's like, if you read through the Gospels, like he says this several times. So Jesus tells them and like up until the very end, until the crucifixion, they're like, I don't get it. So... <clears throat> He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Hebrews 9, just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So this is like one of the clearest illustrations of the two-age framework. There had to be 
suffering before the glory. <clears throat> and then, and then what is the testimony from, from really from Acts onward, even though Jesus establishes it before, they get clarity on it after the 40 days of talking with him about the kingdom of God. That's when they get clarity on the mystery. And so this becomes central to the proclamation of the gospel after this. God's love was revealed among us in this way. In this way. God sent His one and only Son to the world so that we might live through Him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His His Son to be a propitiation. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. And if you read the, the whole book of First John, you, there's no room for an arbitrary definition of love in First John, unless you quote like this half of a verse and that half of a verse and then that half of a verse there. There's no room for an arbitrary definition of we just love each other because of anything else but suffering. There's no other way. Because Christ loved us in this way. So therefore, we ought to love the brethren. <clears throat> First Peter two is like the most offensive, but this is—I mean, this is the truth. This is the testimony that we received. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake. So, so, so the point is: is if it's this age and the age to come, the testimony of God's mercy in the present age demands a restraint from vengeance and retaliation. Because what is God doing? Right? This is why there's, it's, such a, it's such a simple transition between, like the word martyr is a, is a common word in English now, but the word martyr doesn't exist in the Greek scriptures. It just means to be a witness. It just means to testify. So there was an easy transition in Acts 6 and 7, when Stephen is being killed because he's simply testifying about the grace of God. And so you say he's being martyred, but he's just testifying. He's being a martyr, a, a witness. <clears throat> Likewise, retaliation from injustice is the opposite of a witness of what God's doing in the present, in the present age. So that's why you have Peter saying, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. So what's the context to the people that he's writing? Roman Empire, Caesar, Nero, right? Like even secular historians acknowledge that Nero is like the most evil dude that ever, ever uh, ruled probably. <clears throat> Whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to his governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that in doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. In doing good. In doing good. Slaves, so let's talk about doing good. Slaves, slavery, right? Slavery, in reverent fear to God, submit yourselves to your masters. 
because you fear what God will do to them if they don't repent. Not because you fear God for yourself. Submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but to those who are harsh. It is commendable if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because your conscience of God. What's God like? What is God saying to this unjust slave master? <clears throat> and if because of your conscience of that, you bear up under the pain of the injustice, it's commendable to God. The actual Greek word there is it actually, it earns grace with God. It earns charis with God. <clears throat> but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. But when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. <clears throat> Revelation 1. <clears throat> From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Faithful witness of what? Of who? Of God. And this one, the faithful witness of the mercy of God in context to his own suffering, he was the firstborn of the dead. Why? Because he's the example. No one should ever, ever go, God, what pleases you? What kind of a lifestyle is pleasing to you? Because God raised a man from the dead. We know what God honors. We know the kind of life that God esteems. <clears throat> Likewise, the only other person of whom it said it's a faithful witness is Antipas, and he was killed. <clears throat> for the faith and first Peter four, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same purpose. Hebrews two, therefore he had to be like his brothers in every way. He had to become like his brothers. Um, NASB says so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tested and has suffered, he's able to help those who are tested. That they too might follow in his footsteps. Mark 8. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life is going to lose it. And whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So this is, this is the clear witness that the apostles gave to us of the Lord Jesus. Is that his life was an example. His suffering was exemplary. And the testimony we have that it was an example to us is that God raised him from the dead. That's why this was central to the apostolic proclamation. It wasn't... It wasn't an arbitrary miracle that God raised him from the dead. 
This is the promise that God has in store for all of the righteous. But God raised him from the dead, commending him that he alone is the one that's pleasing and acceptable to God. And he's the only one that can rightly bring the day of wrath because he doesn't judge unjustly. So God raised him from the dead as a vindication. That's what he said in Acts 17. God has appointed a day and he's appointed a man. Testifying and confirming that he appointed him by raising him from the dead. <clears throat> and so likewise, the Lord then appointed apostles. He appointed these men who he would send. And they understand themselves likewise to be examples to the people. Right? This is who God appoints. God doesn't appoint speakers to stand up on a platform and to make sure that we have all the right doctrine. Or to sit in a round table. He doesn't do that. God appoints witnesses of the mercy of God, proclaiming His death until the day of wrath. The apostolic example, <clears throat> bearing witness to the mercy of God, testifying to the coming kingdom. So here, this is uh, 1 Timothy 1. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. But for that reason I was shown mercy. But for that very reason I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display His immense patience as an example for those who would believe and receive eternal life. So Paul understands his calling entirely in context to God establishing his life as an example, just like Jesus' life was set before his disciples as an example. <clears throat> Likewise, 1 Corinthians, Therefore I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. There was a pattern of life of imitating the apostles that was understood to be normative to receiving the faith. That was synonymous with receiving the message was you received their example of life and you committed also. That's why Paul said, imitate me as I imitate the Lord Jesus. Follow me to the degree that I follow the Lord Jesus. Because this pattern has to be given as a witness, not as a sermon. It has to be given as a witness to the people that accompanies words. First uh, Colossians one twenty four. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. For your sake. Why? And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. And I fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. What's lacking in Christ's affliction? Not the substitutionary atonement, certainly. It's the witness. Not everyone saw him. I fill up what's lacking in his suffering 
in my own suffering as a testimony to you for your sake. Does that make sense? Okay, 2 Timothy. This is, this is, so we're going to do a lot like this. We're just going to take giant chunks of the scripture and just read through all of them. So hopefully it, it kind of puts big passages together. So we're kind of going to jump around from 2 Timothy 1 to 2 Timothy 4, but it's basically, this is like the whole theme. So, and of this gospel, this is, you know, this is Paul's last letter. This is like the, so Paul's writing just before his death and he's, and he's admonishing Timothy. It sounds, it sounds as if Timothy is actually possibly shying back from the witness of the gospel and Paul's um, not giving him an out. And, and Paul's really going to lay it on pretty heavy. And uh, he says, And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. That is why I'm suffering as I am. I was appointed a, a herald, a proclaimer of the gospel. That's why I'm suffering. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. This is the testimony of the gospel. Guys, this is why I'm suffering. I'm entrusting my life to God. Like who? Who else entrusted his life to God in suffering and justice? The Messiah, right? It bears witness. You don't tell people about the kingdom and the resurrection and then they take your stuff or they slap you on the face and you act like it's not going to be returned to you. We bear witness as elders, leaders, proclaimers of the gospel that our faith is anchored in the age to come by resisting retaliation in any context because that is the only pure witness of the gospel. So we refrain from retaliation so that we can actually bear witness. No, no. Like I, I had my car stolen uh, a year and a half ago and, and the officer was filling out a report with me and he goes, you're taking this remarkably well. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's not like I don't believe it matters, but, but the age to come is real. The day of the Lord is real. I'm not going to hold someone else accountable and, and mute my witness before the cop or anybody else. <clears throat> And then jumping up to, to chapter 2, verse 2, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust those to reliable people who will be qualified to teach others. Entrust the pattern. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Rem verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, the descendant of David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may inherit salvation that is in Christ Jesus. I'm enduring this, going through this, so that God's word is not chained, that the testimony would go forth of my chains, how I'm entrusting my life to God, and the elect might inherit eternal life. Because of my testimony. It is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we will live with him. 
If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, Timothy, if we deny him, he will deny us. If we're faithless, he will be faithful in the judgment. This is the context. He will remain faithful for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things, Timothy. Uh, up to chapter 3. This is so intense. and We're, we're going to go over the, the, a little bit of the context. Now you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, love, perseverance, persecution, and sufferings as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. The persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Brothers, there's, there's not a lack of... We were talking this morning with some of the guys uh, on a Skype call. There's not a lack of persecution in the Western church because we have a superior governmental model. There's a lack of persecution in the West because nobody's proclaiming the mercy of God in context to the day of wrath. You know what I mean? You go and you tell, you sit before Obama one day for whatever reason, and you tell him about the day of wrath. And, and let's see how, how sophisticated our, our government reacts towards you. You know what I mean? And it's the same way in our pulpits. It's the same way with our friends. There's no persecution because nobody is proclaiming the day of wrath in context or, or, or the, the mercy of God in context to the day of wrath. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Timothy. <clears throat> I mean, it's not, it's not difficult to imagine. You have a fairly developed, for that time, you have a fairly developed Gentile church community in Ephesus. Paul was there for a number of years. And it was really well-developed system that he implemented there. Easy to get lost in the mix and to just kind of go with the flow. It's a machine. These are the same guys that Jesus says of them about 40 years later. You've lost your first love. Repent now or I'm going to remove your candlestick. But it's easy just to get in the flow and Timothy's there and he says, Timothy, don't deceive yourself. Anybody who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why? Because that's the only way that God has ordained the gospel to go go forth in this age. There's no other example in scripture of anybody who bore witness to the truth that didn't suffer. Not because of happenstance. Not because of happenstance. Because this is the testimony of the mercy of God. That when they're stoning Stephen, and Stephen looks up to heaven, and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand. What does Psalm 110 say? Sit at my right hand until the day of wrath. Right? Until I make your enemies a footstool, and you fill the earth with corpses. He sees him standing. Not sitting. He sees the day, he's Peter, or he says, Stephen, what you're living your life for is real. The day of the Lord really is going to come. And what does he say immediately after he sees that? Oh, God, have mercy on them. They don't know what they're doing. It's the day of the wrath. It's the day of wrath that causes him to pray for them. The day of wrath is real. God's going to send the day of the Lord on these Pharisees. And he says, God, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. <clears throat> it's the testimony of the gospel. 
And then up in chapter 4, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, Timothy. The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. And in the future, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Right? Chapter 1. I'm co- I know who I've trusted, and I'm confident that he's able to entrust or keep what I've entrusted to him until that day. What is he entrusted to him? His life. Right? He will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who've loved his appearing. What's intense about that is, the, the context of that is, all those who've loved his appearing are those who are proclaiming the gospel and suffering as a result. <clears throat> but the context where he says in chapter 3, you followed my teaching, my purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecution, and suffering. All the things that happened to be in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, so, the, so Timothy actually comes from this region. So that's where Paul uh, meets him and then takes him because he was, uh, he was well, well spoken of by the brothers there. And, but Timothy most likely meets Paul in context to Acts 14, like we're going to talk about. <clears throat> and then, and then uh, so Paul's referring back to this. <clears throat> so I think Timothy was from Lystra, but... I think it's Lystra, but Jews came, so Paul's in Lystra, right, and and Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and after winning the crowd over, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, presuming him to be dead. So do you know what it takes for somebody to presume to be dead in, in that context, right? They drag him out of the city because, you know, you don't let him die and rot in the city. But so you either threw him over a cliff, right, and and that was clearly not the context, or you took, you know, baseball to grapefruit sized rocks and you threw it at him in the head until they stopped twitching. And then you assumed that they were dead. And so um I heard Alan Hood one time talk on this and <clears throat> he pointed out that a lot of scholars point to some some strange uh some strange verses in the letters of Paul, and even in, in, in later on in Acts, like like when Paul is a, is a Pharisee, right? Stands before the high priest, and high priest uh, uh, tells them to strike him, and he goes, "God will strike you, you whitewashed tomb." And and the other guys go, "How can you speak to the high priest that way?" And he goes, "Oh, sorry, I didn't know it was the high priest." But this is Paul, like Pharisee of Pharisees, and high priest dressed differently. And it was, you know, pretty. everyone knew who the high priest was in Jerusalem. So the question was, how did Paul not know? And most likely, scholars point to the fact that the pelts to the head, like basically he couldn't hardly see. And, and later on, when he finishes, when he finishes his letter, and, it, and he, says, uh, he says, see, it's me I'm writing in large letters. And it was somehow understood, possibly because of, some damage to his hand or whatever. It didn't have to be here. It could have been in a different one. But he, his letters were, the way he wrote was different from everybody. He had to write in large letters. <clears throat> and they thought he was dead. And after the disciples had surrounded him, he got up and went back into the city. And on the next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. And after they proclaimed the good news in that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra Iconium into Antioch. So 
Timothy is a young disciple in Lystra, right? Where Paul gets stoned and he comes back, I mean, how long does it take you to heal from that, right? And he comes back and he says, and he strengthened the souls of the disciples and he encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying, we must enter the kingdom of God through many persecutions. So imagine Paul's face, imagine his body, and this is the context that Timothy meets him in. And so, and he's like, Timothy, remember how you met me. I'm reminding you, young man. Likewise, uh, the, here's, here's one of the most beautiful examples of an apostolic, uh, of the apostolic example is First Thessalonians 1. It says, because our gospel came to you, and not simply with words, but also power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, you know how we lived among you for your sake. How we lived among you. There it goes again. For your sake is how we lived among you. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So you became imitators of us, receiving the message amid suffering. So that you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So who, who left Paul's example? Believing the gospel, entrusting his life to God in the midst of suffering. Paul's example was the Messiah. And then Paul became an example to the Thessalonians. Because he believed and entrusted his life to God in the context of sufferings. And then the Thessalonians believed the gospel and trusted their lives to God in context of suffering. And they became an example to all the believers in Asia. <clears throat> or in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's <clears throat> message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has also been, become known everywhere. Verse 9, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. For you, brothers and sisters, verse 14, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus, because you suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. God sets up receiving the gospel in context to suffering as the example and the pattern for walking out your, the rest of your time in this age. Colossians 1, But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and not moved from the hope held out in the gospel... This is the gospel which you heard and that's being proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. I'm suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. <clears throat> read this and then we'll uh, go for a short break. 
Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and I see you or I remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is just a sign of the destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you, what's the sign of salvation to you? In context to your opponents, is that to you it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. So this is clearly over and over and over again in every letter. Paul establishes his own suffering as exemplary, and the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus as exemplary. Paul It's assumed by Paul's own writings that he's suffering only because he trusts that God will raise him from the dead. Right? 2 Corinthians 5, if this earthly tent is killed, we have an everlasting building from God. Like, we're not worried. That's why we entrust ourselves to God. But this is the testimony that he uses to compel them to flee from false teaching. Because they don't trust God. To raise the dead. They live for now. Look what they do. Look at the way that they treat you. Look at the way they treat money. They don't entrust themselves to God. 